Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's continue in worship. We're going to now worship through study. This is an act of worship as well, ascribing worth uh, to the creator of the universe through studying his word, believing that he has not left us alone and without. We're going to continue our series through the book of John. We started back at the beginning of January, and now we're making our way through, and we're in John chapter 13. John is going to make a shift a little bit here to where we've studied a lot of Jesus' life in the first 11 or 12 chapters. Uh, chapters 13 through midway through 18, all focus on one night of Jesus' life. It's the night of Passover, uh, the night of his arrest before his crucifixion. So John spends a lot of time here, and he does so as an eyewitness. He saw all of this. And so there's some different detail that he's added here for us. But we can't neglect the whole point of why John wrote the book, according to John chapter 20, that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah that he truly is the Son of God, and that by believing we might find life in his name. This is not just a textbook of things to memorize. You don't have to pass a test or pretend you know things you don't. This is about the relationship we have with Jesus. This is why we study the Word of God. Earlier in John, he said that the Jews study the Scriptures as if they're the end to themselves, but they didn't realize that the Scriptures talked about him. And through that, they might find life. Maybe not make the same uh, mistake. We'll be in John chapter 13. Uh, today. I don't know uh, what kind of places you have in your house like this. We have a place in our house where everything seems to collect. Whether you come in from the garage or you come in from outside, there's a place in our house that seems to attract everything anyone in our house owns at the same time. And it's just full of all those things, uh, full of purses and wallets and sunglasses and keys and toys and Dorito crumbs. Anybody have a place like this in your house where just everything collects? It might be right by your door where you walk in. We have a kitchen island uh, near our back door where we usually come in or where we come in from the garage. And that thing, um, it's a highly populated island uh, for us, always covered with things. There's always papers on it. It's where we, somehow it's where the mail ends up before I file it into the trash can. That's where it always ends up for us. You have a place like that in your house? I think we all do. And so it's the bane of our existence. Meredith and I, we strive to keep that island cl- clear and clean from clutter. That's, that's our desire. Uh, we have three children, and so we're, it's, it's not working. What's happening? It's not working for us. Uh, coming yesterday from mowing the grass, Meredith had worked hard inside, and the house was beautiful and clean, and the island, I was like, what, what is this? What, what, what is this piece of, what is this granite on top of this cabinet? What is this? She's like, it's the island, and um, thou shalt not. Thou shalt not put anything on my island. Please do not. Do not touch this island. And in those moments when it's clean, it's like we should take a picture. We should, just, we should remember this. We should build a memorial as unto the Lord of the time that we crossed over the Jordan and found our island to be clean. And so this is, for us, this is that place for us. And it's the place that we desire to keep clean. And so in trying to keep it clean, we don't want anything unclean to come in contact with that place. But then we forget that this is actually a useful thing for our house. Like it's where our kids like to eat their lunches or where they like to um, play with toys or paint or color or draw. Um, it's also where they like to wipe whatever's on their hand. They like to do that on there as well. But we forget this is a useful thing. But we fight so hard to keep it sacred and clean that we actually don't get the use out of it that we, that we should. So I say all that to say this. Uh, we're going to read from John chapter 13. 
And we have to remember when we read the Bible, we essentially, we travel both in time and in culture when we read the scripture. We're really bad, particularly in the West and Americans, uh, as thinking that everyone lives the same way that we do and they have the same thoughts that we do. And if you don't, you're an idiot. That's kind of how we think. And so we do that with the Bible. We're like, these people, man, they were so primitive and uneducated. I can't believe they thought these things. And um, just pay attention to the news and you'll realize we aren't so different uh, from them. Thank you. Thank you. We can go home now because that's all I needed. We aren't so different. And so what I need us to do, though, is we, got, we need to put ourselves in this, in this place. We're going to go into Matthew, John chapter 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And we've you've probably heard this story a lot. If you've grown up in church, even if you haven't, maybe in a business setting. And it's been used to talk about um, servant leadership, which I think is good, but it's not the point. Um, how many of you have been in a foot washing ceremony? Have you ever done foot washing, whether you're with a youth group or something like that? Yeah, powerful disgusting, but also powerful um, in, in that moment. So we've done that, which is great. We should wash each other's feet and what that communicates and humility. And I've done those things. I've been a part of that. It's, I, it's wonderful. But it's not the point of what's happening here. So we need to make sure we read this in context. So we've studied through John. The, the blessing is we get to put in context of the overarching theme of John, the chapter that just came before, the one that's coming after, and in the whole narrative of Scripture and in history. These men at the Last Supper in this upper room in John chapter 13 are Jewish men. They're Israelites. They grew up steeped in Israelite culture. Many of them were trained uh, in Jewish school, Jewish faith, probably until the age of 13 or so when they were then told, hey, you're not going to cut it um, as a teacher or a rabbi or a student of this anymore. Why don't you go back to fishing or farming or wherever you, carpentry, wherever you came from. So they're steeped in this. The Israelite culture is one um, grossly into uh, cleanliness versus uncleanliness. So even, even the Old Testament speaks highly of uh, being clean versus being unclean. And we can look at it like, oh, I can't believe they would do those things. It just sounds so ridiculous. Well, listen, let's just put it in our context. How would you feel if you had surgery and you're laying there before they put you to sleep and the surgeon comes in sniffling and then wipes his hand, wipes his nose with his hand and then begins to operate on you. Would you enjoy that? I would not enjoy that because it's a clean, sanitary, sacred space that's been contaminated uh, by the snot of a doctor. And you don't, you don't want that, right? It's not that different. This is, this is just how they believed. And they believed in such a way that um, the predominant belief was that anything unclean would contaminate something that is clean. And so they fought tooth and nail to keep uncleanliness out of the cleanliness, particularly of the temple. And so there were purification rites. There were ways that um, you had to bathe and shower. There were laws about how to wash your hands, which we've all become familiar with over the past year of how to wash your hands. And so they learned all of that. They fought for that. The primary place, the sacredest place, the most sacred place for them was inside of the temple in what's called the Holy of Holies. This is where they believed God actually resided. And so in this place were a few um, things that reminded them of the holiness of God. One of them would have been a table with burning coals that constantly burned with incense to remind them of the presence of God. Whenever the high priest were to enter into the Holy of Holies uh, for a sacrifice, he would have to make sure he was completely clean. Otherwise, he would be killed on the spot just by the presence of God would, would do such a thing to him. So this is the predominant belief that uncleanliness contaminates cleanliness. 
And on top of that, whenever uncleanness would come in contact with cleanness, the uncleanness would be incinerated so as to preserve the purity and cleanliness of that space. This, is, this was the belief, and it, they saw it uh, to be true. So you've got that happening in the beginning of the Old Testament. Then a prophet named Isaiah comes on the scene, and God has called Isaiah to be a prophetic voice about the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, and how things are going to begin to shift and move. And many of us, if you've grown up in church, are familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read a few verses from it to put John 13 in context for us so we don't miss it. Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is a vision Isaiah is having, really, of the holy place, the holy of holies. Above him, above the Lord, stood the seraphim. Um, These are not chubby white babies with wings and arrows. This is not who they are. Uh, Seraphim are creatures, um, but they're not cute and cuddly. They are disgusting to look at. Here's how he describes them. They had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two wings, he covered his feet. And with the two, he flew. And one seraphim called to the other and said, Holy, 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 sanctified, set apart, pure, clean is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds in Isaiah's vision shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah speaking. And I said, woe is me, or this is it. I'm done. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For I have, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, a man of God, speaking pure things, speaking prophecy from the word of, for, the man, for God on behalf of God, comes face to face with the presence of God. And even Isaiah's holiness felt dirty compared to what he was experiencing. And he says, ah, this is it. This is where uh, the uncleanliness is going to contaminate the cleanliness of God unless he incinerates me. And he says, shoot, woe is me. This is the end. I'm a man of unclean lips. Then it continues in verse 6. One of the seraphim, one of the disgusting uh, six-winged creatures, flies at him. So now it's gone from bad to worse uh, because now those monkeys from the Wizard of Oz are now attacking him. And so they're flying at him. And he has in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. So they've taken a tong or a, a charcoal piece, a coal, with tongs from the incense continually burning for the presence of God. I mean, hot, hot, hot coal. It's supposed to uh, reference and represent the presence of God. And this disgusting animal flies at Isaiah, already cowering, already on the ground, already fearful. And this thing comes flying at him. And you've got to think about the things that are going through his mind. What's going to happen? This is going to hurt. This is the end for me. I'm going to, I'm going to die by a flying creature with coal. This is how I go out. And so it flies to him, verse 7, and he touched my mouth. Now, what you would expect if you're hearing this as an Israelite is, and then I died, and then I blew up. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This vision of Isaiah is speaking and pushing us forward to the coming of Jesus. Because in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, and when, when God enters the scene in the person of Jesus, 
the holiness of God, the sacredness of God enters the dirt and filth of the earth. And what they would have thought would have happened would have been then the earth would blow up and it would have been incinerated because they can't coexist. No, no, no. The cleanliness of God transforms the uncleanness of Isaiah's lips. This is revolution. This is radical for what they had been taught. For the first time now, there's, a, there's an inkling of an idea that um, unholiness doesn't contaminate the holiness of God. So the need for distinction, the need for separation, the need for purification is, is changing. Something's happening here to where now there's good news coming. There's good news that the holiness of God might actually transform the disgusting filth of mankind. We don't need to be afraid to enter the presence of God because God himself is entering our presence, not by means of punishment or condemnation in John 3, 17, but it means that he might seek and save those who are lost. So like what happens for us, this happens, generations pass and they, they remember it, but they don't really remember it and they fall back into old ways and then God sends Jesus in the New Testament and that's where all this happens. So I want you to keep Isaiah 6 in mind as we go into John chapter 13. The thought of the Israelite disciples, the 12 men in the upper room with Jesus, was that anything dirty would contaminate what is holy. That's just a belief. John chapter 13, we need to reframe some of this. So please, I know we come in with, you've heard sermons before about John 13. You've heard it explained. You've Heard it used in business ventures about servant leadership. That's fine and, and all well and good. But let's just read this in context. Let's read what the Bible actually says. Not what we think it says, not what we want it to say, not what we've heard it says, but what it actually says. Let's just read it in that way. We're going to see Peter, and we need to do the same thing with Peter. We all have these preconceived ideas about Peter. And Peter's just become the annoying loudmouth in the group for many of us. This is just who he is. No one really likes to be around him. He's a teacher's pet. The other 11 don't really like him. They just put up with him. And so when he fails, they like it. That's not true. Peter's a good guy. Uh, Peter tries really hard. Like he, he's all in to following Jesus. He's given up a lot to follow him. There's some baggage underneath it. He wasn't considered good enough at the age of 13. He has kind of poured himself into his fishing profession. He's become really good at that. Peter is the guy who's just, whatever he's into, he's, he's all into that. He's all, if he's into Pokemon, he's all the way into Pokemon. Like he thinks he's Pikachu. This is, this is what he's doing. This is, this is who Peter is. So in following Jesus, out of all the 12 disciples, he's all in. Like he, he's serving, he's working, he's learning, he's studying, he's sacrificial. He's the first one to say that, he, that Jesus actually is the Messiah. He believes that. I mean, he's all in. He's not an accident waiting to happen. He's not a fool. He's a really good guy. He's like many of us who grew up in church, and we really do want to love Jesus. We really do, and we really do want to be good at this, and we want to work at our quiet time and memorizing Scripture, and we, we want to be better leaders, and we want to be good. This is who Peter is. He's not a fool. He's not a joke. He's not the punchline. We're going to learn he's a leader of leaders. These men, they actually looked up to him. So he has a bit of a reputation to uphold because underneath all of that is a feeling of, I think I, the imposter syndrome, that I, I might not actually be who I'm claiming to be. What if I'm not? What if all of this comes out? Like if, if I sin one time, it's over for me. 
So he fights so hard to be pure. John 13 reads this way. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world uh, to the Father, having loved those who were with Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John's setting the stage for us. Love. Love. This is how he he loves his disciples to the end. Verse 2. During supper, which would have been the Passover feast, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we're going to talk about Judas again. Um, Remember in John chapter 11, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And Judas says, how dare you? We could have sold that oil and then given that money to the poor. What a waste. And Jesus says, you stop it, Judas. Just stop. What she's doing is right and good. And we read in Matthew that from that moment, Judas leaves Mary Martha and Lazarus' house in Bethany, runs to the Jewish authorities and says, hey, how much would you give me to turn him into you? Like, I'm done. It's just, it's one too many times that he's called me out. It's one too many times that I feel like I'm not good enough. So what, what will it take? 30 pieces of silver? That's fine. I'm in. What do you need me to do? I'll kiss him on the cheek, and that's how you'll know it's him. So this is what's happening after that. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Uh, This role to wash somebody's feet was the lowest of the servants, would have had this task to wash people's feet as they entered the house, walking all day long in the dirt and the dust and their sandals. And this was, it was a lowly kind of thing. And Peter says, "Uh, you you think you're going to wash my feet? We learned about Peter that he highly esteemed Jesus. I mean, he saw him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. He revered him. He worshiped him. And in this moment, he's like, you can't, you can't wash my feet. You're the Son of God. Like, you created, all, you created my feet. You can't do this. You're going to wash my feet? And here's the sweet grace of Jesus in verse 7. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. This is so sweet of Jesus. He's saying, listen, I don't try to figure this out. But I need you to remember what's happening right now. Like, I need you to lock in on this. I'm going to say some things, and I'm going to do some things now that you're going to have to cling to and hold on to. And you need to remember it. So don't try to, don't try to figure it out. Don't try to talk me out of this. I just be present right here. Key in on this. It's such a sweet gift that the Lord would give to Peter the things he needs now before it actually happens. And there are some of us here today, and you'd be like, well, that didn't really apply to me. Maybe not. Maybe not today. But maybe you need this for something coming. Maybe you need it. And students, maybe you do. Like, maybe you need it. I taught um, high school math for a number of years. And the number one question I would get from students in high school math was, when am I ever going to use this in my real life? And I would just look at them like, I have no idea. But I know I have to do this to get paid. So A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Just memorize it. That's fine. I don't care. But this is the moment where he's like, this is, you, you're going to need this. You're going to need this. Just pay attention. I, just, I love how sweet that is to Peter. So he tells him, verse 8, um, 
Peter, completely missing it, says, you, you'll, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, listen, if, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. That word means you're not going to have complete fellowship with me. He's obviously not talking about washing feet, right? Because Jesus is friends with people with dirty feet. That's not, that's not the issue. There's something going on beneath what's going on here. And we can't miss it. He says, if, if you don't let me wash you, we can't have union. We can't have true fellowship together unless I wash you. Well, then uh, Peter changes his mind in verse 9. Well, in that case, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. This is just Peter's passion. I want union with you. I want fellowship with you. Yes, then do all of it. Like, if that gets me a little bit, give me all of it. I want you to wash all of me. Wash it all away. Wash all the filth. And I want all of you. I just want fellowship with you. And then Jesus says, hey, Peter, listen, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, this word you is plural. It's like y'all. Y'all are clean, but not every one of you. So Jesus then tells Peter, listen, I don't, I'm not here to bathe you. And this, we have to be careful. This is not about hygiene. Jesus isn't giving tips of, hey, here's how you wash. This is deeper. So we got to pay attention. And he says, you don't need me to wash all of you. You've already done that. You just need me to wash your feet. So beneath the surface, what he's saying is, you've already been cleansed from your sins. Right? You, you've already been purified through faith. You've already been purified by grace through faith. You already have union with me. You're already with me. And in fact, later we would learn that nothing can pluck us out of the Father's hand. You, you've got that. I'm not asking you to be saved again. What I'm saying is you've still got some stuff on your feet that I've got to wash off. You don't, need, you don't need to rededicate your life. You don't need to be baptized again. You don't, you don't need to walk the aisle again. I, you just need to confess and repent. So you've got some dirt on you, that's all. Like, let, let's not make this what it's not. And he says, all of you are clean except one of you. There's one of you who's not clean. Verse 11, he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So um, what's interesting is that he washed Judas's feet too. Such sweet grace of Jesus. But we're going to learn that there is someone among them who would betray Jesus, who in fact had not actually given his life to Jesus. So I want you to Remember what's happening. These men have been following Jesus for three and a half years. I mean, no, having no place to sleep, no place to lay their heads, traveling and traveling in the hot sun, um, doing things that could get them killed for three and a half years. Remember in John chapter 6, people say, this is a hard saying. I have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. What does that mean? And Jesus says, well, I mean, either you are following me or you're not. So what will it be? And then he asked the disciples, what about you? And then Peter says, where else are we going to go? You've got the key to eternal life. You know who was there at that moment in John chapter 6? Judas Iscariot. And Judas had a moment. Jesus gave him an off-ramp and he didn't take it. So he's still there at the Last Supper when Jesus would be arrested just a few short hours later because of the betrayal of Judas. So let me just make a statement here. I'm not naive enough to think that in this room today there aren't people who actually have been walking with Jesus who actually haven't started to follow him. And I don't, that's not condemnation to you. It's just that there's a difference uh, between being uh, walking with Jesus and actually being a follower of Jesus. So yeah, three and a half years, 12 years, 30 years, like you've, you've done the right things, you've been at the right places, but your heart hasn't been transformed. 
which is why every Sunday we're going to lay out the gospel. Because I want you to know him, not just pretend, not just fake it, not just do the good Southern thing, but to actually know Jesus. So Judas is here. Jesus makes this statement. Um, Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. He's saying, I do have authority. I do have the power here in this room. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is not a call for them to become the disciples of sanitation. This is not what this is. Not what this is. He's not saying, hey, so, listen, when all this is over, go get you some basins, um, brand them, put your logo on them, and then go out and do your thing. Right? There's something else. We all know there's something else going on here. So what is he saying? He says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have just done to you. Truly, truly, I say, to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If I'm willing to do this, what makes you think you should do any different? If I'm willing to wash feet, you should be willing to do the same thing. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Don't just know them. Don't just remember them. Don't just quote them. Don't just awana them. I need you to actually do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now, again, the sweet grace of Jesus, before it takes place. So when it does, you will know that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So he's just perpetuating uh, the idea of followership. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, which just really killed the vibe at that point at the Last Supper. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, which makes sense. There's 12 of us. We've all been with you three and a half. Who? One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, this is John, the author, was reclining at table by the side of Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to John. I would have loved to have seen this scene. Where Peter's like, Psst, John, John, you ask him. No, not me, you. Not I already did it, you do it. He motions to, to John to ask of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus plainly says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when Jesus dipped the morsel, he handed it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken, after Judas had eaten the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. For real? Because I think he just told you why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, maybe he was, Jesus was telling him, we need to go buy what we need for the feast, or he should give some to the poor. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So we can joke about it, but here's why. Because no one in that room believed anyone was capable of betraying Jesus at that point. The same way that if someone today were to say, right, stand up and say, you know what, I, I haven't been following Jesus. You'd be like, but you're a deacon. You must be mistaken. No. Wouldn't that be surprising? Wouldn't it be surprising if, if there was, uh, you, we've, heard, we've heard many accounts here lately of, of followers of Jesus, Christians, authors, and pastors coming out and saying, you know what, I actually never actually believe this. Like that is, we don't believe, I don't, 
think that's actually going to happen. But it does here. So Judas leaves. When he had gone out, Jesus said, this is verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Got it? Good. Verse 33, uh, little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me. Just as I said to the Jews earlier, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Pay attention to 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, if he would have stopped there, we'd have been like, I, I mean, love has so many different facets to it and different ways that we've interpreted what love is. For some of us, um, love is letting our kids do whatever they want, while others of us, love is not letting their kids do whatever they want whenever. Some of us have interpreted love as a way that you sacrifice your life for someone, and some of us say, no, 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 it's just me giving really sweet um, cards and candy and flowers. But this is, Jesus now is going to tell us, hey, when I say love one another, I'm not being ambiguous. This is not some riddle to be solved. Here's what I'm saying. This is the new commandment, love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. The Greek would read, just as I have just now loved you. So he's not necessarily speaking of the crucifixion to come. He's not necessarily speaking of what's happened for three and a half years. What he's speaking of, what just happened. Were you paying attention? Love each other how I just loved you. How I just did it. This is how you are to love one another. How did Jesus just love them? Here's how he just loved them. They came in with dirty feet. And Jesus purified their dirty feet without demanding that they go back and start at zero and get saved again. He met them where they were. He saw the filth on their feet. And he purified them. He cleansed them without saying, hey, listen, this is disgusting. I can't believe you would come into my presence with that on your feet. Go back outside, find somebody to wash you, and then come back inside. He didn't say, hey, that's dirty, but you know what else is dirty? The rest of you. Let's go back and get you saved again, and then maybe we can. He didn't say, hey, your feet are dirty. I'm going to wash them. And then I need you for six months to prove to me that you won't get your feet dirty again. And then, then you can come back into my presence. Nope. He said to Peter, let me wash your feet. Peter said, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, no. Listen, if I don't cleanse you of this, there's going to be fracture between us forever, and you don't want that. Peter said, well, then cleanse all of me. And Jesus said, nope, you don't need that either. Let's not make this what it isn't. You're still mine. I just want to be in union with you. I just want to be completely in fellowship with you. That's all I want. So when Jesus says the commandment is that we should love one another as he has loved us, that's the commandment for us. But we're prone to stipulations we're prone to over-exaggerating. We're prone to running to the worst-case scenario. And so we make people who just, just have dirty feet. We say, your feet are disgusting, and so are you. Never again. Your feet are disgusting. Well, can you wash them? No, no, no. You need to go all the way back and start all the way over again. Your feet are disgusting. Can you wash them? Sure. As soon as you prove to me that you know how to keep your feet clean, then I will wash them. So Jesus says, no, no, no. Listen, this is the new commandment. The new commandment is that cleanliness transforms uncleanliness. This is the new way. This is the new covenant. 
that the purity of the gospel, the purity of Jesus, the purity of grace isn't contaminated by filth and sin. It isn't. In fact, the grace of the gospel purifies the dirtiness of our sin. This is the new commandment. And he says, how dare you think that you're better than me? No servant is better than his master. So if I'm going to do this, how dare you preach a different gospel than this? If I'm willing, the creator of the universe, the one who, sin, who people sin against, if I'm willing to say, hey, listen, listen let me clean your feet. Confess, repent, and, I, and I, it's, it'll be clean and we'll be back in relationship. How dare some of you say, no, 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 not enough. Give me six months. Then maybe. This is the new commandment. You need to love. We need to love how Christ has loved us. Well, why? Verse 35. Because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love, this love, if you have love like this for one another. Do you understand how in our culture, how distinguishing this kind of love is? In a culture that wants to cancel anyone and bring up everybody's past sin and, and make a mockery out of what somebody said when they were 14 years old that disqualifies them from something today? Do you understand what an ethic of evangelism this is today? That we would say, sure. Yeah, I see your feet are dirty. Let me get my towel. Let me wash you. Sure. Sure. Yeah, you can fellowship here. Yes. Yes. Oh, you had that addiction? So did I. Here's what happened for me. And then we wash feet. Like, did we see how much of the gospel this communicates to a broken and dying world? We aren't like the world. We're not like them. We don't kick you to the curb. We don't push you aside. We don't tell you you aren't good enough. Sure, I can wash your feet. Why? Because Jesus washed mine. Simon Peter then said to him, um, I've, where are you going? And Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I would lay down my life for you. He's not lying. He means it. He truly believes it. And Jesus said, will you though? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus says, hey, listen, tonight, like in a few hours, you're going to fall into the deepest sin you've ever been in. You're going to be at the point of despair. And I need you to remember what just happened. You're going to walk into darkness like you've never experienced. And you're going to feel separated from me. One gospel writer tells us that in the midst of his denial of Jesus after the third one, Jesus sees him and they fix eyes. Can you imagine what Peter felt? It's over. I wanted to be with him and I've ruined it. Jesus says, this is coming, but listen, please don't forget. Don't forget what just happened. Don't forget that I washed your feet. Don't forget the conversation. Don't forget that I said you don't need to bathe again. You just need your feet washed. Don't forget that I said this is for our union, not for punishment. This is for union and fellowship with me. Please don't forget, Peter. Don't forget. I just wonder today if there are some of us here today who are just like Peter. And you don't, you don't have the words of Jesus like this to fall back on. 
And so what's happened is you've grown up in the church and you're a good kid, you're a good student, you're a good guy, you're a good husband or a good wife and you've done all the right things and you've played the right game, but deep down inside, you know something that no one else knows. There's sin in your heart that is so dark that if it were to ever come to the surface, you would lose everything you ever wanted. You would lose a family, you would lose a job, you would lose friends. But what you really realize is that you would lose Jesus. And so now you're just pretending and you're, you're content to live at 80% of, of what God has for you because it's better than what's out there. And some of us have begun to question our salvation because of it. We're saying, man, if, if I really was a, a Christian, I wouldn't struggle with this. Now, you're not saying that because you've got a reputation to uphold and you're in leadership and you're doing these things right and you're on some staff or whatever it is. But what you're thinking is, gosh, if, how can I say I love Jesus and still have this addiction to pornography? How can I, how can I say I love Jesus? How, I must not be a follower of Jesus if I still have these compulsions. I must not actually be a follower of Jesus if I, I can't believe I did that. I cannot believe I did that. And so you're saying, just wash all of me, wash all of me. And so you've tried it, right? You've, you've been at camps, you've been at churches, you've recommitted, you've done all the things you can do and it's still not working because here's why. What we need is confession and repentance and the Lord to grab his towel and his basin and say, hey, just your feet, just need your feet. I don't know if that's you today. Maybe you feel like I just, I need to start over and Jesus says, no, you don't. You just got dirty feet, you're mine. You haven't lost me. You feel separated. Let me, let me watch this and we'll get back together. Maybe that's you today. I, just, I want to encourage you with this and leave you with these words that he just needs to wash your feet. And you can come back home. You can come back. On the flip side, though, there's some of us who maybe we are Peter, we were Peter, we're going to be Peter, but I think what we need to hear today is this new commandment to love one another. What's happened for us, for a lot of us, is we've drifted away from the gospel of Jesus because it just feels too scandalous. If I give people grace, if I love them like this, they're going to take advantage of it. Maybe. Judas did. But the commandment is to love one another as Jesus just loved his disciples. just wonder how many of us today have become more like the world in our criticizing and calling out and name-calling and neglecting and abusing. This call to love one another as Christ loved us, it's not ambiguous. It's direct. Here's how we do it. We just see their dirty feet and we grab our towel. We don't call names. We don't accuse. We don't make this, well, this is just who they are. Uh, maybe. Maybe. It's not your job. Your job's to grab the towel. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, in the world they criticize. This is the business of the public press, and it's very much the business in private circles. Do you hear how gossips say, do you see that spot? What a terrible walks that man must have had this morning. Look at his feet. He has been very much in the mire, you can see, for there are still traces upon him. That is the world's way. Christ's way is very different. He says nothing, but he takes the basin and begins to wash away the stain. Do not judge and condemn. 
but seek the restoration and the improvement of the erring. I wonder how many of us have drifted away from the way of God into the way of the world. And we're criticizing and condemning and judging. Just like the world. It's not you being holy. It's not you being set apart. That's you thinking you're better than Jesus. That's what that is. A servant is greater than his master. Who says you get to dictate? I've already dictated. Servant follows his master. If I'm willing to do it, Jesus says, and I'm the one who sinned against, that makes you think you shouldn't be doing this also. This is not about washing feet or servant leadership. This is about the gospel of Jesus. That's what's at stake. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm going to wrap us up and we'll be dismissed. I don't know where you find yourself today. If you feel like Peter and you feel like you're too far gone, you feel like, okay, the charade is over. Okay, I've been found out. Okay, it is true. The worst things I thought about me actually are true. So you've begun to question everything and you're not going to admit it because of what it would cost you. just want to encourage you in this way. Living at 80% of your relationship with Jesus is hell. You can be restored to him. You can find wholeness with him. You can find peace with your relationship with him. You can. You don't need to rededicate. You don't need to get baptized again. You don't, you don't need that. You just need confession and repentance. That's what you need. That's it. Then for some of us this morning, um, how dare we think that we know better than Jesus? How dare we put stipulations on somebody's restoration or their forgiveness? How dare we beg for penance? It's not the way of Jesus. May it not be so among us. There are broken people who feel far from God. And they keep far, feeling far from God because the people of God treat them like they are. They're one good foot washing away from complete restoration with Jesus. Maybe we should just grab towels instead. Maybe today you're here and you're more like Judas and that um, you actually aren't following Jesus. And maybe you've played the game for a while. So there's no shame in admitting that you're a sinner and you need to follow Jesus. I don't care. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you're an elder. I don't care if you're a deacon or a small group leader. Today is the day of salvation. Yeah, but then will people think, I don't know, what's Jesus going to think? Maybe that's you this morning, and um, maybe you just, you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've given your time to Jesus, but you've never given your life to him. The gospel uh, is found, the good news is found in this. You admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You can't do it on your own, that his way is better that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who died to pay the penalty of your sin, that you believe in his death and resurrection, not just that it happened, but that it's happening in you, and that you can walk in new life. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to name him as Lord. He's the master. To submit your life to him. You're going to find freedom like you've never felt before. I want to encourage you in that way. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your good news. I thank you for who you are. You are better than I ever thought you were. 
in the midst of my striving and earning and trying to prove, God, I discredited you. I discredited your love for me. I made a mockery of it by believing that it was just founded on, on how good I was. And then you proved to me that my worst, that I'm still yours. If there's anybody here today who needs it, God, give them that comfort. Uh, help us to run to the basins and run to the towels. We might be a church full of restoration through the gospel of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.